Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest in, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 68. And it's titled, How Technology and Free Stuff Undermine the Middle Class. When I was in high school in the early 1980s, a particularly enlightened teacher named Miss Widener, who the student body disparagingly called Swamp Moose, hand-selected nine students, including me, to join a semester-long experimental class called Futures. And as I look back on it, It was really enlightened because it had different grades. There were some seniors, there were some juniors, and instead of most of my high school classes consisted of the teacher writing notes on the board, rehearsing what he or she wrote, and the students taking them down in their notebooks. This teacher, Ms. Widener, wanted to have discussions, and for her textbook, it wasn't a thick textbook, It was a work of nonfiction by futurist Alvin Toffler called The Third Wave. And we spent an entire semester looking at the various advances on what was happening in the future. The first wave, according to Toffler, was the shift from a hunter-gatherer society to one based primarily on agricultural. And the second wave was the Industrial Revolution. And the third wave was the information age. And as you think about this, back in the early 80s, the the personal computer had only been out a few years. The internet didn't really, I mean, it existed, but not in sort of the, the World Wide Web. And my exposure at that time to personal technology had consisted primarily of a handheld Coleco electronic football game that consisted of navigating a blinking red dot through this Defense or maze comprised also of red dots. We also had an Atari Pong game system that we played on our television set. Just you hit this white dot back and forth with paddles made of white dashes. Now, this was sort of a theoretical class because we didn't, it was not by any means hands on. We remember the miracle drug we talked about was interferon, and I'm not even sure whatever happened to interferon, but we talked about what was going on with computers, with the PC, and how it was going to potentially change society. Our high school had one computer. It was a Radio Shack TRS-80. It was kept in a closet-sized, windowless room. I never took the computers class. It just seemed kind of nerdy, and I just didn't think it was very cool. To my loss, I should have taken it. But here we are. Looking out three decades later, and I marvel at how we are washed in these third wave advances from the internet to the iPhones to social media to personal computers and gaming systems that have microprocessors and memories that are thousands of times more powerful than what existed in the early to mid-80s. Life is better. We're more connected. 
with knowledge and entertainment available at the swipe of our finger. There's more variety. There are more choices, both in terms of things and experiences. For example, between 1975 and 2008, the number of products in the average supermarket increased from 9,000 to almost 47,000, according to the Food Marketing Institute. And thanks to these technological advances, not only do we have a greater variety of feature-rich products and services, but those goods and services are produced more efficiently. Productivity improvements, along with population growth, have contributed to an expanding economy. Now, I've talked about what the economy means in earlier episodes, but here's a quick review. By economy, we're talking about the dollar value of goods and services produced during a given period. It's a measure of a nation's output, which is also known as gross domestic product. And so this technology has allowed us to produce goods and services more efficiently. And so productivity has improved, population has grown, and that has allowed the economy to grow. How does the government measure the value of a nation's output in terms of what was produced? Well, they can do it in two ways. They can look at what households, businesses, and governments spent during a given period, as well as what they invested in projects to be able to produce more output in the future. And so it's an estimate based on what was spent. They can also estimate GDP by looking at how much income was received by households, businesses, and government. Income in terms of earnings or in terms of labor earnings or labor income in terms of business earnings, i.e. profits in terms of dividends. And so within an economy, the aggregate amount spent always equals the aggregate amount of income. When I spend a dollar, that dollar is someone else's income. So looking back 30 years, what has the impact been of technology in terms of output produced, in terms of income received? In 1979, in the U.S., the value of GDP was $6.3 trillion dollars on an inflation-adjusted basis. Today, it is over $16 trillion. Put another way, the amount of income received via employment, business earnings, and investment earnings annually today is two and a half times what it was in 1979 after adjusting for inflation. Wealth has increased. But here is where we want to dive deep and look at How was that wealth distributed? Certainly technology has helped. We've seen that we're much, in the U.S., much more productive in terms of producing output. And with the population growing, that has allowed GDP and wealth to expand. But here is what is key to this episode. The distribution of the wealth has shifted in terms of where it is going. There is certain segments of the population that are benefiting more from technology. A greater percentage of income is now going to the wealthiest, while less is going to the lower and middle classes. Last year, the Congressional Budget Office released a comprehensive report of how income in the U.S. is distributed. 
And, and these numbers, when I looked at them, I was absolutely astounded. Now, this is all based on, this is between 1979 and 2011, average annual pre-tax income before transfer payments. And transfer payments are government assistance, tax credits. And another word for this is market income. So income without any type of influence in terms of the government, before taxes are paid, before any type of social benefits are received. The bottom quartile, I'm sorry, it's the bottom quintile of income. So quintile is 20%. Five quintiles equal 100. So we're looking at quintiles here. The bottom quintile, the poorest within the U.S., their income, their market income, pre-tax income before transfer payments, went from $6,800 per year to $7,900 per year adjusted for inflation. So these are real numbers. And so there's been an increase over 30 years, 32 years actually, of only $1,100 for the poorest of the poor. Think about that. Could you live on $8,000 per year? That's the market income. That's income before tax credits. That's the bottom 20% of the U.S. The middle quintile, their income went from $51,000 in 1979 to $55,400 per year. So this is the average for the middle. Only a $4,000 increase over 32 years. Now, the top quintile, the average annual market income increased from 136000 to 240800 So you got the middle only increasing 4000 You have the top quintile practically doubling their income. Now, this is before any type, again, influence the government. This is, and we'll see why, the influence of technology. When we talk about income inequality, that's happening, and it's dramatic. So let's classify this another way. Annual inflation-adjusted market income growth for the middle three income quintiles. So this is the middle three. It would be the 21st to 80th percentiles. Averaged 0.5% growth per year. That's it. Essentially stagnant after adjusting for inflation. Now, the 81st to the 99th percentiles, their market income grew at about 1.8% per year. You add on inflation, assume inflation at 3%, their income's growing about 5%. But on a real basis, 1.8% a year. Four times as fast as the middle three quintiles. The top 1% inflation-adjusted income growth has averaged about 5.5% per year on a real basis. So annual market income growth over the past three decades was over 10 times faster for the top 1% compared to the middle class. So when you, when you go, I remember being and going to, gosh, what was it called? It was, it was Occupy Wall Street. And I remember walking and just, I was fascinated by it. I took pictures and, and just looking at, essentially they took over, the, I forget the name of the park in New York City. And it was all around the world. And, and, and I, I was there as a tourist, honestly, to take pictures and see and try to get a sense of, of what the level of frustration are, was. But when I look at these numbers, yeah, I could see some frustration. How is it that the top 1% of 
their market income is growing 10 times faster than the middle class. The middle class is getting a smaller share of incremental wealth being generated by the information age. So why is that? As with any complex phenomena, there is always multiple reasons. I'm just going to highlight a few. The first is connectivity fosters a race to the bottom, the race to find the cheapest prices, both in terms of manufacturing capability and sourcing goods, as well as as consumers as we look to buy. In earlier episodes, way back again, I think in the first 10 episodes, it might have even been the episode True Cost of a Thing, I talked about the job losses within the U.S. apparel industry. The U.S. employed 833,000 workers in the apparel industry, manufacturing apparel 20 years ago. Today, it's 136,000, so an 84% decline. Why is that? Well, because with the internet, it's easier to coordinate a supply chain and it's easier to find the sources of good and coordinate them and and pay less. And that's what happened. We've had a huge outsourcing from developed countries to developing countries. Now, I'm not – That's. I guess what it's trying – it makes it sound absolutely horrible. And – It's horrible in the sense that if the working conditions of those in in those countries are are oppressive, that is definitely horrible. But even if it wasn't oppressive and the excellent working conditions, the reality is the developing market has lower wages compared to developed countries. And technology has allowed manufacturers to take advantage of that. Manufacturers and service providers have also benefited from automation. Technology has allowed for more automation. That's what productivity improvements are. That's, in some ways, what we want. We want, in order for the economy to grow, you need to either have more workers or your workers need to be more efficient. And one way for workers to be more efficient is to employ technology to do that, which means you need less workers to produce the same amount of stuff. But here's the thing. Here's where businesses have to make a choice. When you become more efficient, it's, they can, you can either become more profitable or you can pass on some of those benefits of automation to your workers and increase wages. Or you can do both. When we looked at those income numbers where the middle class's income has essentially stagnated, it's pretty clear they're not getting the benefit of higher profits in terms of higher wages. It's falling to the bottom line, and the top 20%, the top quintile, tends to own more businesses. By definition, they own more businesses. They own larger businesses, and and they own more stock. They have more capital investments. And as a result, more income is coming through corporate profits, and that is benefiting the wealthiest in the U.S. and another developed nation. So automation, connectivity has allowed this race to the bottom. But also as consumers, we are more connected. We can source the best prices, 
And if we make choices solely on, solely on price, exclusively on price, then that also fosters that race to the bottom. And it also fosters an advantage for the biggest and the most hyper-efficient companies, such as Walmart, such as Amazon. They can out-compete on price local merchants. And as a result, local merchants aren't able to hire employees and and that that ongoing hyper-efficiency. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Now, there's another aspect to information technology. And, and I'm not saying, I guess, it, there's two sides to this coin is what it comes down to. We heavily benefit from all the cool things with technology, with the personal computers. And, and so life is good. But there's also an underbelly of it that is influencing the economic distribution of wealth in this country and potentially will have catastrophic consequences as we look decades down the road. If this trend continues, eventually you need a middle class in order to actually buy things. And if it's just the wealthy and you have a certainly the poor and the middle class with stagnating wages, that's just not healthy for a democracy. But there's another aspect of this technology. It's this winner-take-all outcomes. There is this concept called preferential attachment. We are awash in information and choices. And as a result, we look to our neighbors to help us make decisions. We look at what's most popular. And as a result, the bigger get bigger and the popular 
get more popular. And again, that concentrates profits to to the a particular to the most hyper efficient. And, and as a result, that also hurts the, the middle class. I was on I, I, I mentioned I was in, in Texas this past weekend at a conference. My flight, I missed my connecting flight by two minutes, which frustrated the heck out of me because I was at the gate eight minutes before the, the regional jet, not a big jet, regional jet was leaving. United insisted I couldn't get on the flight, not the gate agent. The gate agent was very, very empathetic, but the operations team in our hyper-efficient world closes at 10 minutes before. If you're two minutes late, too bad. So anyway, United was kind enough after some prodding by me to put me up in a hotel. So all 55 of us are waiting in line at the hotel to get our free room. But on the way back, I sat in the back of the van and I was talking to a guy and we were sort of commiserating on our crummy evening. And I started asking him what he did. And he said for a living, because he'd been in Maine for a week, he was going back to Santa Fe. He says he was a, music- a musician. And my ears picked up because there's, there's not many musicians anymore. Because another aspect of technology is too much free stuff. And he talked about how musicians have been willing to trade money for exposure. They're willing to put out their stuff for free on these big networks or the, these such a, a SoundCloud, MySpace, I guess MySpace isn't there anymore, but are willing to share freely, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but consumers unwilling to pay for music, passing it around free on file sharing. With everything free, it has actually decimated the, the musician industry. The number of people... Used, used to, to supporting musicians, not just the musicians, but those that assist with recording, etc., used to be in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands in the U.S. Now it's not because musicians and others, it's, it's when you have too much free stuff, when everything is free, when most things are free, that becomes the norm. And who benefits from that? Those that control the these large networks and perhaps are not fully compensating musicians, but it certainly costs jobs. And, and again, whoever controls these big networks where we're all providing free stuff, and by free stuff, I'm talking about, certainly it's our blog post, it's our family vacation photos on Facebook, but it's also the data that these big network providers are getting from spying on us. It's our shopping habits. It's Everything we put on Facebook, it's everything we put on Twitter, and it all gets compiled together. They do correlations, and essentially, this big data allows them to better optimize their networks so the right ad shows up in front. And I've been reading a book by Jaron Lanier called Who Owns the Future, and I also recently finished a book called You're Not a Gadget, and these were both recommended by listener a Tim, who you know worries a lot about these things, and and I've been reading it, and you're right. It's these huge networks have more and more concentrated power as they gather more and more data, which we give freely 
to these networks by sharing. And as a result, we get greater and greater concentration of power in the biggest of the big companies and networks. In, in the terms of, of bio, biology, we are lacking diversity. And it's becoming more and more concentrated. And in biology and in evolution, that is a recipe for disaster because we get these positive feedback loops, which I talked about a few episodes ago on when we're talking about the, the what was happening to bees and how you had bee you had colony collapse, and we talked about addressed income inequality there. But part of it is when we lack diversity in terms of figuring out, you know, what is the optimal solution to problems? And everything gets concentrated and you only have big companies coming up with the potential solutions. And we don't have lots, millions and millions of people trying to figure out the best way to do things in the world that potentially can lead to these positive feedback loops, which can lead to collapses and economic disaster. We don't want so much concentration at the top. And concentration of wealth is the same thing. So what do we do about it? I mean, these are just some of the reasons. There are many, many other reasons that I could talk about. But in the interest of time, what can be done? Well, first, a country needs to decide, is it good for its lowest quintile, the bottom 20%, to be making only $8,000 a year, have an average of $8,000 of income before any type of social benefits. Now, one perspective would be, well, the reason why they only make $8,000 is because they get a lot of social benefits. Yet, when we look at the jobs that have, that have left the country because it's cheaper to manufacture things overseas, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs, you have to wonder. But what is done is there is a redistribution of wealth through the tax system. The lowest quintile gets 2.2% of income in this country, in the U.S. So if everything was, was evenly split, and I'm certainly not recommending that, you'd have every quintile would get 20% of market income. The lowest quintile gets 2.2%. The top 1% gets 16.9% of market income. The top decile, I'm sorry, the top quintile, excluding the top 1%, gets 41% of market income. So if I add those two together, that's about the top quintile, including the top 1%, get receives 60% of total income in the U.S. The middle quintile, as I mentioned, the middle quintile with their average market income of $55,000, that equates to 13% of total market income. So the tax policy, you have tax credits for the lowest quintile. The highest quintile pays more in taxes. And the top 1%, just to give you an idea, the top 1% on average, has $1.4 million in income. The lowest quintile has $8,000, as I mentioned. So there's a redistribution. So after tax credits, after very, very low tax rates for that lowest quintile, they get 9.4% of 
after-tax income, whereas the top 1% after-tax income goes from 16.9%. So the market income is 16.9%. It goes down to 13%. And so they still have the vast majority, but that does adjust it somewhat. So afterwards, certainly the lowest quintile has more income because of tax credits. So that's one way you solve it. You, you, you have a essentially some unfairness or inequity in markets that is a result of just essentially the information age, and you can adjust that through tax policy. That doesn't necessarily address this issue of more and more concentration. That has to be addressed, I think, from what Jaron Lanier thinks we should get paid somehow for all this data we're providing for free from the, these big companies that are spying on us. And, and I haven't got to the point in his book where he suggests how that's to be done. But certainly as consumers, we can be willing to pay for stuff. I don't know how often, uh, I mean, there's been times when people have suggested books to me and you know, oftentimes it comes through the PDF of the PDF of the book. And as opposed to, which I don't read, because if I want a book, I'm going to buy the book because I want the author to be rewarded. And I don't want to watch a free movie that I can download. I want to pay for it somehow because we want the musicians, I want authors, creators to be rewarded for their effort. Now, certainly everything provides some stuff for free. I provide a lot of content for free, free via the podcast, but I also provide content, premium content, through the Money for the Rest of Us hub. So we can be cognizant of what we're buying and and making sure that we're not just grabbing free stuff because there is a cost to free, and that cost of free ultimately is jobs. It impacts the middle class and eventually can impact our democracy. I don't have any more solutions to that. I'm sure there are others. I'm going to continue to research it. If you have any suggestions, go ahead and email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you, and I email each week a summary article that summarizes probably a little more eloquently than than my off-the-cuff speaking here on the podcast, but you can get a nice summary of what I discussed in each episode. Sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. I was at Podcast Movement. The one thing that was reiterated over and over again is encourage your listeners to subscribe. Most of you, I think, subscribe to the podcast, either through your app, through iTunes. You hit the subscribe button. And and iTunes recently changed their format to where you only see on the, on the iTunes page the most recent 20 episodes. So please subscribe, follow, or whatever it's called on your app. That way you can just get each episode delivered to you when it's published immediately, generally at noon on Wednesday. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your risk profile. I've not provided any type of investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.